All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. And today we are joined by Nathan French, a kind of guide, entrepreneur, a guy with a lot of experience in the hunting industry, specifically sheep and 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 kind of multiple species of sheep. And what instigated this conversation was this kind of really out of the ordinary confiscation of a large number of of thin horn sheep this year and Nathan did this in my opinion a really phenomenal um kind of couple days of posts and stories that kind of shed some somewhat controversial and new angles on maybe some of the underlying root causes so I reached out because he's kind of been on my radar for a while as somebody I wanted to get on just as you know a general hunting guy and guide and then when the sheep thing happened that was really the kind of you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, where I was like, yeah, let's just get this guy on. So first of all, Nathan, thank you very much, man. And I really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, man, it should be fun. Okay. So before we get into all that stuff, let's kind of rewind the clock a little bit. What is your, your hunting background? Do you come from a hunting family and maybe where do you come from because i i've we've never spoken before i didn't even realize there was an accent so maybe we got to back up further than that where's where's that come from and um what's the hunting background like yeah so uh hopefully everyone can understand me i kind of speak fast sometimes and mumble but i'm originally from england i uh, had zero hunting background didn't know what an animal was barely i knew what deer was because you'd hit them in england sometimes but I uh, moved to Canada, BC in 2003, and uh, what got me into that hunting is my parents bought a house right opposite a taxonomy shop, and I walked in there one day, and it's an older guy, he's been doing it for 40 years, and uh, it was just amazing. He has this huge museum, probably 16,000 square feet of just everything North America has walking around. And where is this? What city? In Vernon, British Columbia. Okay. Okay. So it's now a, a museum that you can go and walk through. It's called Wildlife uh, Museum in Vernon there. And, uh, yeah, I just, it was just as a little, you know, I was only 11 years old. I was just like, whoa, what is this? Right. And then uh, he introduced me to hunting. He took me out in September, you know, went deer hunting or whatever. And, uh, and just, it just transpired from there, just compounded. Um, I just got addicted basically. And so fast forward to 17 years old, I graduated high school early and uh, he used to guide in the Yukon. And he just kept saying, you know, you, you love hunting, you know, take a summer and see if you can get a wrangling job up in the Yukon or somewhere. So, you know, I typed out my email, my resume and just asked a bunch of outfits. This is, you know, do you have a job? This is what I want to do. Try and got the job, and that's twelve years ago, basically now, and I haven't looked back. So, yeah. who was that first first gig with? It was with uh, Mervin's Yukon outfit. Okay. And the funny story is, is Ken. This is the guy I'm referencing to in Vernon. Uh, he used to guide for Rod Hardy, which is the same area Tim bought. So okay. he, we guided in the same area, or I wrangled, I should say, I didn't guide there. Um, so uh, just kind of, you know, you know, things happen like that. That's so uh, I wrangled there, for, wrangled there for one summer or one season, and then uh, got a, a guiding job slash, like I started off going with other guides as well in, for the sheep. I went to Chris Whitrigs and did two seasons there. 
And to be honest, if I could give anyone advice, if I look back at my career, that is probably the best two years I had for myself because he did things completely reverse to what the typical Yukon outfit would do. And okay. he, he only hired guides. So there was no such thing as a wrangler. There was no cook in camp. It was you, your client, seven to eight horses. See you later. <laughs> so uh, I learned a lot. I learned how to have a good uh, horse wrangle and rodeo and horse running away and people getting bucked off and packs flying. And, um, those were two frustrating years, hard hunting. But if I look back, I would do it again because I learned so much and it just teaches you to think for yourself. Right. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, I do a, I do a horse hunt and I get to have a wrangler along. I'm like, Whoa, this is nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's yeah. so funny. We, um, I, I met a new buddy this year. We did a, a sheep hunt, three of us. The one guy I kind of knew the one guy I didn't know at all. And the one guy ended up having to fly home early. So me and this other guy finished the hunt. And anyways, we, we really, we really clicked, but just before the hunt, yeah, he'd done the same thing. And he, he's younger and he's a certified carpenter and a bunch of stuff. He's 25 and he just decided, I'm just, I'm just done, man. I just, I just love hunting so much. That's all I want to do. So he sent out a bunch of emails and right before we left on the sheep hunt, he got hired as a wrangler for Stone Mountain Safaris. Oh yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And uh, his name's Spencer. Anybody who listens to the podcast will 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 know who he is. And we're in reaching all the time, man. And he's he's losing his shit up there. Like he's loving it. Like doesn't want to come back. He had a he had a grizzly walking behind him the other night, and it was funny because that was one of his big fears. He'd never even seen a grizzly, and so I'd worked with him a little bit just on like general bear bear awareness and like it's more psychological than than anything. And it was funny texting with him last night, and he's like, "Ah, oh, dude, he was close enough to throw rocks at." It's like it's like no concern for him now, and I don't think pure immer anything you want to learn at. I don't think there's a better way than pure immersion. And with hunting, I think the guiding world is just the best. Like you're never, where else are you going to get, you could take an average guy and add up his field days over 10 years. And it's not going to equal what you would get in one season of guiding. No, no, no. I, uh, I'd have to count. Like, I don't know exactly. And I don't want to give some bull crap number, but you know, I was doing in my peak, I was doing nine months to almost 10 months in a season, right? You, That's you, crazy. You your spring bears and spring bears is pretty cushy, you know, you're in a yeah. lot, but, and then July 1st, you're heading to the north and you're there till mid October. And I'd usually come home throwing a big horn hunt in there. You know, you're late October and then I'd straight over to Alberta doing archery big horns and you're there till the end of November. And then I'd run off to Mexico and all of a sudden it's February, March, and you get a couple of months off and start again, right? Um, that's a full season. And I've, I've done a few of those. And then I, I chose personally to step back and I, I didn't do the spring bears because I kind of wanted some time to do other things. Right? And then you, you miss out on so much of your personal hunts too. So last year, when none of us had a job, basically, in the guy uh, industry, I did a lot of hunting and it was, yeah. it was a blast. And finally to do it for yourself, right? That's what I always wondered with the guides because the seasons overlapped and twice in my life, I've turned the things I loved into jobs. I became a snowboard instructor and I became a personal trainer because I like snowboarding and I like working out. And both times I was like, it really, 
it makes it hard to stay passionate about your own personal pursuits. Cause when you're on the hill with like snotty kids for 10 hours a day, like the last thing you want to do on your Saturday is go do more runs. It's like, yes. I'm kind of over it. So I almost caution people with it these days. Cause I also think temperament, like I'm not a guide. I, I, I would never be a guide. And I think there's an element of, I don't want to say a service mindset or like putting, I think Spencer will do well because he's one of those guys that almost cares more about other people than he does about themselves. And I don't think all guides are like that, but they're, it's, you're not the one hunting man. And it, I think it is significantly different, like the level of motivation and care and attention to detail and the great guides I've met kind of, yeah, they almost stop liking hunting to it, to a certain degree too. Like you hear about all the old guys, they barely even hunt anymore. Uh, this is hilarious. Cause I am so with you. I used to, uh, I, well, I used to be a ski instructor. I did that okay. for six years and a hundred percent the same. I lost the passion to ski yeah, because it just become, you know, it's just a, a job and I, I can look, I can look into the guiding and it, I do, that is a true passion. And I, I even say to guys, I, I feel I'm more of a guide than a hunter. Right. Because I don't need to kill something. Like right. it's awesome, but I do truly do love seeing those people take what they've been, you know, or hopefully saving up for some guys, you know, they throw the cash out and they just buy whatever they want. But I, 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 in recent years, I have been able to hunt with those guys who are more genuine have been saving and it, it just means the world to them to yeah. be in the mountains, right? They want to spend the 10 days, the 14 days up, but they don't want to just day two kill and fly up, get me out. And yeah. So there's definitely two sides to the whole industry. And, um, I just, I found an avenue that really worked for me. So maybe that's a good segue into my next line of questioning. So just so most people realize the average role a guide would play is you, 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 you're, it's probably structured more like a subcontractor, but you're treated like an employee. Mm -hmm. The outfit is going to find the, the, the clients for the most part, you're going to show up, you're going to be for one outfitter all season. There's multiple seasons for a year, but you'd go up to the Yukon for six straight weeks and for the work for the same guy for the six, for the full six weeks. Mm -hmm. And you might do four different hunters throughout that time. And you'd be more like the service provider and the guide would provide, you know, the client and all the rest of it. Now, later in your career, you've transitioned to more like a, and I was searching for the right word for it and I couldn't, maybe you have a better word for it, but it's like a, maybe a freelance guide or you have the ability to get in contact with somebody, maybe dig a little deeper into what the actual type of adventure they're looking for is. And then because you've been doing it for so long and you got a bunch of contacts and relationships, you can kind of put together a hunt that's going to satisfy kind of what they're looking for on a deeper level and then work with some outfitters and then most likely taking them to yourselves. But I even recognize sometimes it might be passing them on, ultimately just making sure they're, they're getting what it is they're looking for out of the adventure. That's kind of at a high level. I'm interested in did that happen because you saw some kind of need that wasn't being addressed? And then how did you facilitate that? Cause I'm sure not all outfitters would be open to like this hired gun or rogue kind of, kind of option. So I'm interested how that whole thing took place. Yeah, it's, that's a great question. Actually, I haven't really thought about it that deep sometimes, but basically, and maybe I already explained just by explaining it, but I worked for the man. I could work for the man for years, right? Just one outfit. Um, and I just wanted more, 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 more. So I just kept searching and look, looking out for it. But 
the years went on and you know your your name gets out there and people pass your name on it and my clientele list was growing and then i saw i guess a demand that these clients wanted to come back and hunt with me right and um yeah you know i think some outfits can get butt hurt in that yeah. <laughs> so um i had by that time made solid relationships with outfitters that i call the greats in the industry yeah um and i believe it was vice versa they they did enjoy me being up there and working for them in the past and you know so you have this client you took in 2015 you did a doll sheep and all of a sudden you've got a text message and everyone, hey i want to do a stone sheep can you help me that's kind of how it started okay um also like um i believe dustin rowe was a huge part in that transition as well because if you look at his career he's been doing that for you know 12 13 14 years a long time right right and i did i did a two years for Dustin and uh, he was supportive in that transition too. And I went, I went at it a different way. Um, and that was just my own personal opinion or want, but he did it more of a lease. Like he would go pre-purchase tags. Right. I set up in a way where I just brought a client, uh, an outfit, a client okay. and made that business transaction of what, each person thought was deserved in that. Yep. Yep. Um, I just, you know, the risk of what Dustin did, right. Good for him. That's huge. Yeah. You know, you, you throw a couple hundred thousand dollars on the plate at the beginning of the season and you yeah. haven't sold him yet. Right. I wasn't in a position in my financial career or whatnot to, to be able to do that. Um, but what I, what I believe I did do worked um, right. and it has, and it's, it's, I've really built a great, clientele list and it's it's honestly the last four years i bet you i could only count eight to ten guys who i keep hunting with it's just the, right. the same guys they just keep coming you know so it's more just yeah i don't know if that made sense but no it does and i've i've uh, a really good buddy of mine tim winslow who runs an outfit down in arizona it's funny it happened to him like this twice so the first time he used to just be an alaskan guide and he worked for it was the guy who was on one of those discovery shows. His name's Eric. And I'm trying to remember what lake it is. It's on the tip of my tongue. Might start with an L. Anyways, doesn't matter. Worked for this guy for a long time. And then it started happening that people would find out he lived in Arizona. And they're like, oh, we want to hunt coos deer. So just real organically, he developed this outfitting business in Arizona that he never really set out to do. And Arizona is a little bit different than BC in that if you can find a client and it's in, and you've got a tag, you can guide them. There's not this like predefined area. So it's a little bit more Western in that regards. But then with his Northern hunting, it's the same thing. Now he just runs like a boutique almost Alaskan guide service and he'll buy some tags off of Eric or do some other stuff, but it's, it's more like that high touch probably only has a dozen guys and maybe goes out with three or four per year. And it's a little bit, yeah, it's the same thing. And I, I mean, there's only a couple ways to go. You do this thing long enough, you're either going to buy an area or you're going to transition into something like, like you've done, because it's not something that 
you're going to need to add another element to the picture in order to really become financially successful in any meaningful way, being a guide other than just serving clients and living on your day wage and tips, because it's just not a lucrative position. And that, that would be a good point too, is I wanted to make it a career. Right. And you have to hustle to try and make guiding a career because you can't make a living really on just a straight guide wage. Right. Yeah. So I know photography is another big thing for you. How does that, how did that come to like weave into the whole picture? I can see how it would organically be something that a, a client would need, but kind of walk me through what happened in that regard. Uh, that's just, a that honestly was, I would say it's a hobby. I, I actually was a huge, well, not huge, but I really enjoyed um, videoing hunts. That's, okay. that's where I started and I was piss poor at it. But I enjoyed, you know, making my own little version. I always send it off to the clients after the hunt, and uh, they must love stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah. And just to look back, like you know, I killed my first ever sheep, some sheep in 2013, and I made that certain YouTube video I did right eventually. But you you forget some things about that hunt, and then you yeah. you go and recap it, right? It's like, oh man, I forgot that day. That sucked, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's funny, you always, you always kind of forget the bad days or remember the good days, but sometimes those bad days are good ones to remember too. Um, a big part of that too, and I, I don't mean to interrupt, what really got me is I would come home from a, from a long backcountry hunt and I have a real hard time like assimilating back into, you know, culture and society when I get back. And people would ask me like, how was it? And I'm like, eh, nothing I tell you, like the words aren't going to land and you're not going to, nothing I am going to fail at being able to accurately explain what that was like. And that's what really, I don't, I didn't realize it till afterwards, but I think that was also a big part of what drove me to film stuff because even more so than photography. And sometimes I make things really long on purpose because I don't know how else to communicate like the monotony or the drudgery or like the, the struggle and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think there's no other medium that does, and I don't think video is perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly the best one of, of what we have at our disposal to really share like what it's like out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. hundred um, percent. Yeah. I'm just trying to, I was trying to think when you're talking about what, how I got into more, cause I did, I kind of, maybe I lost interest in the video or maybe I think what it became is like, just so time consuming and what was it giving me, right? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, like for clients, I'm getting it. I always video my own hunts still. I, I really enjoy that, but there was, you know, there's a lot of time involved in editing, yeah. I think. And Tell me about it. I wasn't trying to be the next wild TV. So um, then I just got, you know, into skills and I've always been a huge wildlife fan. And uh, I just thought, well, I do a ton of archery hunting and, you know, I'm always close to these sheep and, you know, so I just started getting photos myself. And, um, and then it was actually a friend was like, oh, you should like start promoting this. Like, this is really good stuff. I'm mm -hmm. sure the odd person's going to want a picture of a sheep on their wall. Right? Yep. And so I just, I did try and market that a little bit. Um, and yeah, that's, that's still just a hobby for sure. Um, but I do sell prints uh, on and off um, and i'm no darren f i can tell you that but and he's he's an inspiration right there like yeah. i would say he was he got me into it a bit for sure um and i've gone out with him 
different spots, you know, uh, Wild Horse Island, we did a trip down there. Um, gun, there's some goats down south here that uh, there's no hunting and you can get real close to them. So I've got a bunch of my goat photos from there. Just Where are you located these days? Vernon, BC. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I still, I'm luckily I'm, I'm, I'm someone who like, I get inspired by people who are better than me. Mm-hmm. I think I do. I can hold my own on the video front and, and I, I like to think I take somewhat decent photos, but every now and then I'll look at somebody else's photos. I'm just like, holy shit, man. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know how you even saw that. Like, it's just, yeah, it's one of those ones where you either get inspired or you just want to quit because <laughs> it's yeah. like, I'm so far from that. Oh yeah. And I'm, I'm so far from that too yeah I did, it's a hot that's why it's, it's my little thing i love to do um yeah and i'm not trying to trying to make bank on it or trying to be famous i can tell you that um it is it, it, it does feel good though that when you you get encouraging words from people and you know i've sold i've sold almost 100 prints since doing it so i mean man that's pretty good it's, that's not bad yeah yeah <laughs> i think too what I get really, I shouldn't say it's changed a little bit more the longer I've hunted. Cause I think I've stopped feeling like I have something to prove, but I used to get really depressed after failed hunts, like bad. Like I'd come home. My wife was me like, you got to get your shit together because like, I don't watch this kid for a week by myself for you to come home like an asshole. And, but then when I started having films to edit, when I came home, it was different. Cause I was like, okay, I didn't kill anything, but I got this thing that like I'm, I made and it didn't exist before and now it does and I can share it with people and I get a little bit of like social media interaction. So I get a chance to talk about it a little bit and it's really helped change my, my mindset. And I think that coupled with once you take, once you put down a handful of animals, you realize it's just not going to happen every time. And I don't have anything left to prove to myself or anybody else. So I can like take it on the chin a little bit better than, uh, than I used to for sure. But that filming and photography, even just, you know, sitting in Lightroom for a few hours, at, you know, every morning, the week after the hunt and tweaking those photos, even if they are just landscapes and they're not gripping grins. Like, I really think it, yeah, it helped kind of ease that transition out of an unsuccessful hunt back into like day-to-day life. And, you know, that's, that's a deep, deep rabbit hole in the sheep world that some points you just made is something to prove. Yeah. That's... Uh, and social media, honestly, that those are two points that I think have affected what's going on with our sheep in today's industry. And- so let's 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 take this this option and 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 get right into it. So for uh, you know, because not everybody's going to be a sheep hunter on on, on here, and not everybody's going to kind of understand the nuance of what's going on. I've actually had Bill Jack send me the numbers for the last decade, so I can tell you exactly how many sheep have been confiscated and we'll get into the reasons, but here's the the bottom line is there is an alarmingly sharp increase in the trend line for confiscated sheep. And these could be for a variety of reasons. It could be an argument over full curl. It could be an argument over annuli. Recently there was some taken because of lack of appropriate meat was taken out of the field. Um, but re and 2016 was really the year that it kicked off. Like you can go pre that and it's kind of, it's trending like the amount of tags sold to the amount of confiscated rams. Like it kind of seems to be in line. And then we kind of hit this, the knee of the curve and things start to take off and it's still 
to put things in context, we're not talking 50 or 100 rams a year. We're talking single-digit, low-double-digit numbers. But when you look at the number of rams harvested, it's a significant percentage. So the problem is sheep are getting killed that shouldn't get killed. Now, the question is why, followed with what can we do about that? Yeah. <laughs> and what do we, does anyone know the why? You know, yeah. I think, I think there's 101 different opinions out there, and it's a gray line. It's not black and white. And there's too many opinions, is my, uh, it's what I'm trying to get. That's what I was trying to do the other day with those stories. Yes. I'm not trying to pin it on it's the, the biologist, because I, I had a conversation with Mike Bridger, who I know personally. Yep. Um, and he, you know, he came kind of defenseless first. And I'm like, I'm sorry, man, I, I worded this incorrectly. And I took on the chin and I, I put out there that I'd said that wrong. But there is, there is an issue because it's happy, it continues to happen. Yeah. So there has to be a fix. And what is the issue? There's so many issues. Like I have friends who say, oh, if, I, if I'm making a trip all the way up to Dees Lake or wherever I'm going, I have to come home with something. Yeah. Why? Why do you have to come home with something? Yeah. And where has that mindset come from? And I, I do, I believe social media. Yeah. And there's so much ego in this industry and sheep culture now. And it, it kind of, it, you know, and I, me, I'll blame myself too. I, I, I remember the process of becoming to where I am now starting as a young wrangler i wanted to prove myself i wanted to feel validated i wanted to show people that i was good and i could last in the industry and that got me into trouble i wouldn't lie like people you know you you rub them the wrong way and then they remember that for 10 years yeah and it it started to come when i didn't have to prove nothing right i've done it long enough that who cares a guide is not famous. Whoever is guiding you are not famous. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, to the point of when a hunter kills a ram, why, why is the guide taking a picture on his own with a ram? Right. That, little things like that. And I yeah. used to do it. I'm not saying that this isn't me. I used to do it. My mindset is now is why are you doing that, right? right. You, you're just a tool that helps someone get it. It's not your, like, I don't know. I could be going off on the wrong tangent here. It's just no. I think this is all. I think this is all really good stuff to get out. And I think the other element here is there's like a there's a bias introduced by social media because people don't put up even if they do put up pictures of an unsuccessful hunt, the algorithm doesn't grab them like a gripping grin does. And there's this perception of young hunters. Like, dude, it took me seven hunts to kill my first elk with a bow. Five years, seven hunts, and that's not what YouTube tells me. YouTube tells me born and raised outdoors goes out and shoots like nine elk every September with like four dudes. So it's like, there's a very skewed story being put like that you receive from social media that is not in line with the reality of, of the situation. And I think that's another big part of it. Like there's a lot of failure going on there that not a lot of that, that doesn't get the same amount of airtime as the success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It comes to why are we out there hunting? Right. Right. I think we we've lost that is I like, I'm just about to go on a quick hunt with a buddy and I was just on the phone with him today and 
we're not going to be able to get into one spot we wanted to go to, so we're going to go somewhere else. And okay. the chance of killing something are way less. Gotcha. But the conversation was, I don't care. Like, I just want to get out there. Yeah. Like, I want to get away from the, the life of right now and work. I just want to be out there. I don't even care if I have a weapon in my hand. Right. And maybe, you know, some, some hunters are going to listen to this and be like, oh, that's just your excuse because you're a shitty hunter. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, no, it's not. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't think you can ever change what that what's happening with that sort of ego and I have to kill something. I don't think we can change that. I just hope people realize that we are so privileged to be able to do what we're doing right now in British Columbia. And like I said, when we first got on the phone, it's, I'm worried about this industry. Right. Yeah. In ten years, do we still have the same privileges we have right now? Yeah. And the privileges are not rights, in my opinion. Yeah. So. No, I would agree. I had. I'm. I. I won't say I'm as involved as you are about you know being able to just go out to be out there. I definitely still stay focused on the goal. But the one, not that you're not focused on the goal. That's not what I meant. <laughs> um, I have a hard time separating. Like I still success is still. I have a hard time separating that. But what I've done for myself. And because I did kind of make a side hustle out of the Instagram and the YouTube thing, and I, I like putting it out, and I do, that's why it's called Mindful Hunter, and I'm trying to put a more mindful perspective on the pursuit or the discipline of hunting, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And I had this epiphany driving home, and it wasn't even until last year's elk hunt. And it was like, you know, I'm not one of these guys, and I could name off a bunch of names that get access to, to private land or a bunch of doe tags in Oklahoma or ranches in Texas where I can like stack bodies all year. And that's, what's going to drive the viewership of the channel. But I realized I live in one of the hardest places to hunt in the world. And for 20 bucks to 60 bucks, depending on the species, I can craft these incredibly difficult hunts. And what I realized was after putting out a couple of failed hunts that were incredibly hard and, and the feedback that I got on the films, I was like, people like watching me beat the shit out of myself. It's almost more entertaining and I get almost get more out of it than, than putting an animal in the ground. So what I realized was, is I have no control over the success of the hunt, but I do have control over how hard it is. And so I started going out of my way and that's what led me to go do the solo goat thing last year in February. I was like, okay, what, how hard does it get? Like, what can we do here to just make it as challenging? And I didn't take a goat probably one of the most memorable hunts of my life. And I'm already planning my February hunt. And it's like, that's one of the things I'm trying to do is it's like, if you want to be prideful about something or egotistical about something, let's make it about the challenge, Uh, you know, because then, then you can come home and be like, you know, look what I was able to get through. And I think it's, I think that is like a more like a positive way to still like take some control over the hunt. Cause like I, it is tough. Like I do feel for these younger guys, especially when you tell everybody you've gone hunting and then people who don't hunt, don't understand that you don't always come home with something. And I think you, there's gotta be a way where you can still feel like you had a success in some way. Well, I'll give you a real life story. And I think it portrays what you just said is I did a stone sheep hunt. I killed my bighorn. I was tagged out. So I went with a friend who was looking for stone. We did two weeks and we came home without a ram. Okay. Okay. I could 
you know, people people might know I went on this hunt. Oh, he didn't post. He didn't post the picture. He didn't kill one. <laughs> he didn't kill one. You know, that's 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 my success story. I was unsuccessful. Okay, well, ask me about the hunt. We did 108 Google miles. Like we tracked it. Did 108 Google miles. That's probably not accounting for all that little crap you do. Right? Yep, yep. And that's a no bullshit number. So, yep. um, you know, some people like to. My fish was this big. You know? Yeah. Um, and we've seen 126 rams. Yeah. Okay. We also passed up 18 legal rams. So were we unsuccessful? Depends what you determine what's successful. Yeah. We chose to pass up good rams. And that's a story I like to use now, especially with this whole debate we're having with age of rams and stuff is 18 of those rams would have been killed by 95% of the residents probably. Right. If, if they were with me, because they would have defined their success of coming home with a seven year old ram. Yeah. That does nothing for me. I, I don't want to be egotistic in that. that. If someone's first ram is a seven year old full co ram, good for you. It's the, the, the ones that really bother me are the guys who've killed two, three, five, ten sheep. There are guys out there who've killed more than ten sheep. Yeah. I know them personally. Why are they killing just a ram? Why? Yeah. There is no need. I can tell you oh. hung out with Clay Lots because that's exactly what he said. He's like, listen, man, your first one, if it's legal, shoot it. Don't yeah. care. I will yeah. pat you on the back. That's your I don't oh. I want to use the term right loosely, but as a, as your as your first sheep. No problem. But he's like, as soon as that's done, go fuck yourself. That's enough. And, and now I'm not, you need to be held to a different standard. And I, I'm uh, people listening. Like I'm not attacking those people who have killed a seven year old for the first round. Yes. At yes. All. Yep. Totally get it. I'm, I'm attacking the guys I know who have more experience and know better, but yeah. they still define there's got like, like I said, they say, Oh, I have to come home something. Yeah. These guys, these are guys who've killed multiple sheep. Why is that happening? It's uh, same thing you alluded to earlier. It's the it's the ego, and I don't want to shit on anybody either. I've never killed a sheep, so it's the last thing I you know I don't have the the credibility to shit on any sheep hunter. But I've killed two. Like I can't say much, right? Yeah, but that's that's a personal choice. I've passed up a lot of legal rounds. Yeah, that's just I've got my own goal, and my goal is. I probably will max out at three stone sheep is kind of number. Yeah. I'm looking for an archery ram. It's still going to have to be something special. And I'm looking for that no brainer. Yeah. Boone and Crockett old ram. Yeah. And to add to the story, um, one of those rams last year was mid 160s, seven year old. And this is, it's also who you choose to hunt with because the guy I was with, he's never killed a sheep and he passed that around. Wow. He's on the same, and that's not, again, an ego thing. That is just his personal path he's on. Yeah. And he wants to kill probably only one stone sheep, he said. Yeah. And he wants to make sure it is the right one. Such a personal thing, man. And it's so hard to explain and it's so hard to convey. I would like to see a a bigger trend of like what I passed on pictures on Instagram. I'd love that. You know what I mean? Like, let's get some pride or be egotistical about that, you know, because 
here's the other thing that people don't realize is like the real killers in BC aren't anywhere near Instagram. Like through doing this and through being on hunting BC for years before this and just meeting some like legit old dudes, the type of shit some people have killed in British Columbia that pictures have never seen the light of day. And it's just like all, all the younger guys like running around, you know, thinking what they're doing is really impressive. That's the other thing. The guy, a lot of the guys who are doing the truly impressive stuff in British Columbia, people don't even know about. No. And on a guiding side of things, a lot of people don't know what I've killed in BC because I don't post BC stuff. I guide. Right. And that's out of respect for the outfit is usually. Right. And, and there's guys watching it, <laughs> you know, they know, Oh, Nathan's guy in BC. Let's see what he turns up. And I think they, yeah. Um, uh, that's just a personal choice. I post, I, I'm not saying I haven't posted stuff I kill BC, but there's stuff on my phone that isn't on Instagram. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you are right. I, <laughs> I know a couple cold killers who, yeah, they don't need that, that five no. seconds of glory. I call yeah. it. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's take a bit of a turn with this because I think we both agree a lot of the, whatever percentage of this comes from, you know, the, the incentive of, of social media, which is a, probably a significant chunk of it. There's going to be maybe some stuff we can do about that. There may be, maybe there isn't, but then there's another chunk that I think we can have more of an impact on. And that's like decent dudes who just made the wrong call. And I know one of these, they sent me the picture after the hunt. It was his partner that shot it. He was super proud they looked at it for a really long time in their minds, you know, and this was one of those, like, it wasn't a giant old Ram. Do you know what I mean? It was a bit younger, but in their opinion, they're like, I'm pretty sure. Like they thought not pretty sure they were convinced that that was a full curl Ram. They took it. It got confiscated. And I do think there is a percentage and I'd like to hear about this meat thing. I, I still don't know how they're coming I don't know if they weigh what's left in the carcass or what they're or how or if they found something left in the field. I think that's a bit of a murky one that we need to get into. But I and let's let's turn two questions into one because I think the other thing about bad decisions are maybe unclear regulations. Because sometimes somebody came to a conclusion and under one interpretation of the written reg, it would have been okay. But under another interpretation, and let's say there's potentially room for multiple interpretations based on kind of foggy regulations. How do we fix the education slash regulation issue? Or maybe more, maybe a better first question is what's wrong right now with the education or regulation system? Well, first of all, you've got a, a one inch by one inch picture of a crappy drawing of a stone sheep with a little dotted line that shows legal, right? Yep. People need to realize that to truly know a ram's legal is you have to be zero degrees straight on with it. You can't have any degree up or down. That changes it. The other thing, and I, I, I've got videos I could show you this, it's gonna to be too hard to explain, but it's, it's the way it's sat twisted too. Right. So if it's perp, perfectly perpendicular, that annual zero, that that's your what you wanna look for. As soon as that ram turns and it's looking away from you or to, towards you, but still side on, that legal line changes again. Right. So a, a big one is I like to use is like big horns because there's no age, right? So you, you have to be 100% on co. Okay. And I've been 60 yards for four hours on a big horn 
is it, is it, is it, is it, is it? Because it's this, right? Right. I'm, I'm not perfect. I don't know. Like it's, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And so I've been doing it for enough years that I have confidence, but if I'm sitting for four years still, and then you've got a guy who's brand new, well, I hope he's sitting for four hours to decide because yeah. you know, it's, it's like guys who say, Oh, I can, I can age around at 800 yards. I'm like, good for you. Cause I can't, that's, I just can't do it. You know, get into shooting range and make sure you age that round. Cause I can't, I don't care if you got a nine mil far. I've tried, you can't age a ram at 800 yards unless it's like one of those just perfect annual rams that like the right. sun's hitting it and it's just majority of rams you cannot age at that distance. What is a reasonable distance? Like it would be a range or whatever, but what's the number when you start feeling comfortable? Like, yeah, 400. I'm 400. Yeah. I always use 400. Yeah. I, I, I've done it. I've, you can, you can stretch it, but you 400 is you want to be confirming and those are the rams if you're if you're still trying to confirm at 400 you're like oh is it is it is it walk away those yeah. are usually those seven-year-olds am i trying to make an eight family line yeah right um like i'll use my stone sheet by kill for example i was 30 degrees above it 360 yards and made it legal in 10 seconds because i counted and eight was on top of his head with six or four inches, five inches of base left before it stopped. He's legal. Yeah. Um, those are no brainers. It's, it's these rams that you're trying, you're trying to make legal. Those are the rams I think we need to educate. And uh, it was really a, an awakening for me. I have a Zeiss 95 mil Harpia, like it's the eye of God, man. Mm-hmm. And we didn't see any rams on our hunt, but even just glassing the lambs and use, I was like, holy shit, man. When you're seven, 800 away. And it's like that glass scope does spot. There's no, there is no better arguably based on personal preference, I guess. But I was like, man, I would be hard pressed, dude. Like, I, yeah, you would definitely need to be closer than this. Like I'm just seeing like glints of lamb tips and stuff. And it was like, not, I thought, yeah, because you see people's pictures and everything and you're like, or you you take a aging seminar and it's like, yeah, you go this and this, and then you're there and you're like, holy shit, man, I don't know. So I don't know if you caught onto that one post I did on the story is that's another thing is yes, we need that education and people need to like look at a dead head or whatever, a ram is already killed and understand the amulet. You're not doing that on the field. No. You're, you're 400 yards, 500 yards out with the wind blowing on a side hill and the ram's moving. You don't get that. I like it, that, that one where you shook the, where the screen was shaking and then Buddy's next comment is like, well, stop shaking the screen. And it's like, well, you don't get to stop shaking the screen when you're out there. This is the whole point of this exercise, bro. That That's agent. Because yeah. that's what your eye sees. Yeah. You know, and so little tips if someone's or there. even like that, like the heat waves. Oh, that was blowing brutal. my mind this year too, man. I was like, holy brutal. shit, like they're just wobbly sheep a thousand that's, yards out. That's that's a personal preference. That's why the, the eye of God, that's like cool that the star of ninety that yours is the ninety five. Yeah, yeah. They are incredible, but use that midday and they're no better than a sixty, right? Yeah, heat wave sure. destroy. Yeah. And actually this year on a go sheep, I was only four or five hundred yards away and I was with another guy and you know creeping up on it and we're right on like you know ground level and he's just over there and we're looking and 
you couldn't even tell us a ramp. Yeah. Because of those right on the ground stuff is right. Like, yeah. you're like, okay, what, like, I can't age this thing. I can't make this legal yet. Yeah. So you, you got to just put yourself in a position where you can. Don't just guess. <laughs> so what's your own, and I think you've already kind of alluded to this already, but what's your own kind of personal checklist when you, okay, so you've seen something and it shows a bit of promise. So it's definitely worth a second look. What's yeah, the actual and, process you're going to go through now? Like, what do you want to well, find? Obviously, obviously, typically you're going to stop from a mile or two where you're going to spot it, right? It's on yeah. a route. This takes experience and I've been wrong. And Clay explains this to you is look at the body of the ramp. Right. Yes. Um, that, that, is, that is a good one because by that eighth year, typically the ram starts you know looking more stout in his body its back starts to you know big pot belly a bit of a sway back bigger head bigger nose like all these different little things i'm looking for um you usually if and the thing is is if you just got one ram standing there it's hard to you know guess if you've got like a you know six or seven rams you can sometimes usually oh that ram looks different, right? Yeah. Body size is bigger. Oh, look at that big pot belly. Look at that sway back. So you see that, okay, we may as well get closer. But you might just want to get closer anyway, right? If you if you see some, you can't see horn from that distance, right? So get in and get in close. That's the only thing. Like, I make a decision. If you're going to go see these rams and you're making a commitment to hike up there, why stop at 800? Go in there. Um, in a guiding point of view, you have to read your client, right? If it's just a scout mission and you know, you're not going to kill it at this point, you know, and you've got 12 days ahead of you, do you leave your client in eyesight, you know, 400 yards behind you? And you, you do that last bit, big push to see what we've got going on. right? And what's the legality in BC? It's on you as a guide, isn't it here? What Say that again. It, the, who is the whose responsibility is it to call it legal? Because I know some jurisdictions, it's on the hunter in BC. In BC it's the hunter. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, and that's that's an interesting one, right? I uh, I actually found it out. Well, I knew it, but I had a conversation about it this year about. Oh yeah, it's it's a hundred percent because one of these rams that was taken, right? It was on a yeah. guided hunt. Oh, and so. You know whose fault is it? Well, the guy pulled the trigger, but the defense of the hunter and I get this. He's paid X amount of dollars yeah. for this gun. You're paying for a professional. You know some of these guys too, man. And I don't mean to call anybody out, but they are not the most experienced people in the world. No, like they don't kind of have the first right to be calling a legal sheep one way or the other. Some of these dudes. No, like I'm going to take on my shoulders that is my call when yeah. I've got a client with me because. That's I, I hold myself to that level. Like ethically, that's your responsibility, but yeah. legally, they're the ones that, yeah, that's tough, man. Because what are you going to do here in that situation? Here's this guide who's got X amount of years of experience, and he's telling you to pull the trigger, and you're going to say no. That's tough. Yeah, that that sucks. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's I get that. I I reason with the hunters on that one. Yeah, especially on guided hunts, like, oof, that's. Uh, yeah. Okay. It. So we get inside 400. Now, 
now what are we doing? Counting. Yeah. Um, do you and, use the crown thing that Clay kind of proposes? Yeah. Not uh, a cup of tea. And not not to make, like Clay is surpassed anyone. <laughs> yeah. Okay, he knows that everyone like he's been doing this long enough. That's the crown rule. I I've never personally used. Okay, and I'll give him a reason, and I'm sure I'll have a phone call with Clay if he listens. And we'll have our little arguments, but. Um, I know him well enough that this isn't going against Clay. I think we need to, with especially some of the sheep hunters out there, is we need to slow people down. Right. So in Clay, like, you know, he's, this is, you know, this is for count, right? Yeah. I'm like, let's, let, let's, let's get guys to know what's one, two, three, four, four, right? Because yeah. there, there are, there are stone sheep out there that, you know, you, you kind of, oh, okay, four, five, six, there's a crown. Oh, there's five of the crowns legal. Well, take a step back and that crown line is actually three, not four. Right. It depends on the region you are. And I've got multiple pitches, the rams, that had incredible growth early. Right. And it's usually those bigger rams, right? Um, big, heavy bases, long rams, like, and they're probably an eight-year-old ram. And I'll use Montana, for example. They're growing 200-inch rams at five years old. Right? They're, putting all their, they're putting all their energy into growing so much, they're not going to live long. Right. So I, uh, Clay is a big believer in that, and I believe in that is if you have a Boone and Crockett stone sheep or doll sheep that's seven or eight years old and it's a ready Boone and Crockett, kill that ram. Right. And I, I cause he that. might not make it much longer anyways. He's yeah. put so much effort into growth that those, for some reason, those big rams don't live like an 11, 12 year old doshi. That's very interesting. Um, but that's just me. Like the crown rule, it makes sense to a lot of people do it. If it makes sense to me, I just, I do my, my little thing. I just can't. Um, and I think what's happening is I think, the second annual eye is what's the issue okay. with the, the COs, the biologists and hunters. And back to what you said is what, you know, in our regulations, if a ram is groomed, there are cases that rams are being confiscated because there's only seven visual annuli. Right. And they're calling that first one you see one. And it's wrong. <laughs> it's two. <laughs> um, that's another deep hole. But if if we can stop that anyhow, write in the regulations eight visible annuli. Yeah. Get rid of that opinion of oh well now it's up to us to decide if if it's eight or not. Yeah. Because there's only. You know, what are your feelings on the Alaska broomed or double broomed? As soon as it's broomed, go ahead and take it for the dolls. I haven't really thought much on it. That's it has to be double root, right? Eight full coat or double. Yeah. 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 Typically like do you see many seven and under that are double broomed? It's gonna have to be a pig of a ram. And that's kind of, and then that goes to your other theory that he's probably a bit of an accelerated one, anyways. Well, I just or, 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 I'll, I'll back up that or a real tight, twisty one. Right. Um 
But yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think if I've seen. Yeah, I just always one. liked that one because it's like, it's really hard to argue. If it's double broomed, it's double broomed. You want to hear the funniest? Yeah, oh, yeah. The Northwest Territories. It's free Cortico, right? So BC has that on some of their California. So free yep. Cortico. But it says, it words in the regulations. If you can imagine the line passes that line, you know, so if the tip passes that line, say it's like broken off back here. Yeah. You can imagine that line. It's legal. <laughs> so all you got to say when you bring your sheep in is, hey, buddy, I imagine that there's just like eight more inches of growth here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. It's pretty loose up there. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah, I never really, I've never really thought the double room thing about Alaska. It's an interesting one, but most, most rams, when they're mature, yeah, it's an interesting one, actually. Yeah, and I think it's just one of these things that I also think, like, listen, that you you are going to find if you do this long enough, you are going to find a sheep that is that you are not going to need to question. And I, I and I and I think we're in agreement that like that's where the conversation really needs to head. Like, I think it's important that we all have good aging skills so that we understand what we're doing. But at the end of the day, there's going to be sheep that are just no question. Like that is you were allowed to take that sheep, and that's where. That's where I, you know, I'd like to see things. So, move. and you're, you're, you're asking my process, and this is just second nature to me, but I, I tell it to people when I'm having conversations is I look at the whole corn as well. Okay. And I call it the timeline of a sheep. It, it tells you a story. Right. Right. And so typically I found their best growth is actually from two to three. Okay. One to two, they'll sometimes kind of do the same to two to three but in a lot of cases two to three sometimes is even better than one to two but that's that you know one after one to three that's a great like a lot of growth right and i've killed rams i've seen rams that they they just they start off slow and they continue slow right so i i just look at the stories telling me so if it's if it's one to two and it's done eight inches or two to three is probably going to do another eight inches, right? Yeah. And then it starts, you know, three to four will be five, and then it starts slowing down. That ram's going to be young because that's going to be one of those rams where it's third annuli, it's level with its ear, you know, high, yeah. and it's a great growing ram. Leave that. Those are rams we've got to leave. Even if it's full curl and it's six, seven years old, that's our, breed, that's our breeder. It's a prime right. breeder, right? If it's, you know, it starts off slow and it just continues. And those are those real old rams we find, right? They just bang, 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 just stack up. Even if he's seven, he's probably going to be a junker if he's full curl by then. Right. If he's one of those slow grow ones. He's probably going to be tight, right? Yeah, he, he's got, still a breeder. We need him. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, and false annual like two is it really paints the stories that you, you start getting them say between three, two and three, there's a kind of a line you know it's false for sure. Go look. Three to four bait, there's a, another line. Four to five bait, there's another line. And that four to five range, they're probably gonna throw a real strong false annual line. And it's to do with when they get into their real kind of rutty higher end, you know, they start rutting, they start fighting more. 
that's when they real hit their six, sexuality, five to six, four to six in that range. And so you'll see a lot. Just look at pictures. You'll see a lot of sheep have kind of a big false in there. And just to provide some context, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, with what, what causes an annuli is growth stopping, stopping for half the year, and then they come November, back in? November to March, typically. Right. So, they, so uh, they begin their rut, and they put all their energy into rutting. Uh, foliage and the snow's flying is not great feed. Right. So the horn growth stops. And, and what? Then, sorry, go ahead. And then, you know, March hit, let's call it March. You know, I'm no scientist. It could be February 26th. I don't know. Right. But let's Close call enough. It, yeah. Call it March, April. Things start green enough. Um, and the hair growth again started. It horns hair, right? So right. the growth starts again and off it goes and goes all the way till November again. So, that's another thing is I don't believe in half years <laughs> because we're hunting them right after their birthday. They, they're born in June. Yeah. We're killing them in August, mainly, right? September. They're a couple months old, right? In a sense, after their birthday. Um, if you're killing them in December, call it nine and a half. That right. You know, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things. It's what's like my fish is this big, this big. Like, you, you know, five year old kids, like, how old are you? I'm five months you know, five and five months, you know, they, yeah. they always want to just grow a bit. I don't know. He's, he's eight years old. He's nine years old. And you kill him. Um, and also if you, you can like outfits track this, but especially up in the Northwest Territories. But, um, you know, if you look at harder winters or harder, um, drier summers or all those different weather, issues um you can actually go back and look like say you kill a 10 year old ram you can go oh 2005 we had a or oh, sorry 2015 we had a bad year you'll probably see that in them horns right. they'll, they'll tell you like that would represent as a false annuli false or so i was going to get to this we sheep can get out of a, a timeline let's call it right okay. you know usually they slow down gradually it does happen. Like say you got a solid five and also you got another real solid line. That's a couple inches. And then you've got a big gap to seven. That's probably a legit line. Okay. And, uh, Bill Jacks, we've had this conversation and it's to, you know, an injury, something's happened, injury, bad work, something. And it's growth stopped. And then if you see that rebound, then it can be, called a real annuli and obviously if, if there's issues and it's got one of these close ones and they take it to court they might even have to x-ray it right but um it's where it's where you kind of see five six seven like it just that kind of no there's no big gap or small, it's just bang 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 kind of uniformed one of those is most likely at fault it's i i can send you pictures later of what i'm ex- trying to explain that but yeah um, no, and, I think I, I think I get it. And then I don't know how you can't teach that, right? That's just yes. Yeah. You, you know, I've seen hundreds of sheep dead. It, it, it's just something you have to just learn, you know, over time, uh, and look at pictures. But and I'm I'm no I'm no genius either. Like I'm I make I'm wrong, <laughs> but I feel I, I it, age of a sheep. I've always just been so fascinated with, and I really care about it. 
And yeah. so it's a passion of mine. And so I've dove deep into it to try and figure it out. No, I think it's a topic worthy of discussion. And I think there's an asymmetric um, risk reward profile. Like there's no pun- punishment for, for being wrong and not shooting. It, it comes the other way. You know what I mean? There, it's, it's, it's being wrong and shooting that carries the punishment with it. So I do think, you know, it's okay to be wrong, but let's just be wrong in the one direction. Yeah. 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 For sure. Okay. So let's segue out of this a little bit. Cause I do think it's a bit of a rabbit hole and it's a bit of one of these things that there is no perfect answer for. And I think the ultimate takeaway is more education, more responsibility, less concern about what we look like on social media and a more kind of holistic concern. You know, I, and I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but like I'd originally planned to try and I, I, I got one more hunt this year and I was originally going to do a region three sheep hunt. And then maybe some of the areas I was going to go to were burned down and maybe they weren't. And I started thinking about, it. I'm like, did these guys not get the shit kicked out of them enough? Do you know what I mean? Like their whole fucking house just burnt down. I mean, I'm like, listen, I'm, sh- I'm and I'm not going to call anybody else out. If you want to go hunt, go hunt. It's a legal season. There's tags. I'm not going to call you. But I thought to myself, these guys don't need one more body in there chasing them around yeah. this year. Just yeah. give them a break. There'll be yeah. other years, other opportunities. There's other animals whose forests are completely fine. Let's go chase them guys around for a little while. And I think a little bit more thinking about like that sometimes like would, would be beneficial as well. That's you. That's it. Is if we're a hunter, we should be a constant, you know, conservationist. Right. And right there, you've explained your duty as a conservationist. It's for the wildlife, not our own gain. It's for yeah. the wildlife. You know, that's that's perfect. That's what we should be doing. And I, I think about the free, the whole Fraser country. That it, it's got, yeah. you've got the Nuked. five, and you've got the Moby. Yeah, the deposit for Moby. Yeah, like I could see the season being closed down. Then I quick. could too. Yeah. I had Ben from Arcadia on and I was like, I feel bad for that guy, man. Cause he's just taking shit kicking after shit kicking after shit kicking and good guy. And he, he's another guy who knows his shit, man. Like he's been doing this for a long time and it just, yeah, there's a lot of things going on in that area that make it going to make his life very difficult for the next yeah. while. Yeah. Not cool. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to now selfishly pick your brain. I'm going to, I'm going to share a couple of the issues that we, we ran into over the summer and I'd kind of like your feedback and like a, what I could do about it next time. So one of the errors I think we made is that we kind of too heavily bet on a single area. We didn't really have a plan B. Um, and maybe we could have figured out one if we got in there earlier, whatever. I won't get into that part of it, but we were seeing a lot of ewes and lambs. I probably saw 60 or 70 over my 13 days. And at some point it gets hard to tell, like, I don't know, maybe these are the guys I saw over there two days ago. Maybe they're not kind of in one, one big basin, but that early August, it was the second and third week of August part a, when you're seeing a ton of using lambs, is it worth it? Like, are you thinking there's a Ram nearby or are we so far from the rut that that's actually a signal to like move on? And part B how long do you have to be in one area before you're like, it's time to move on. We've given this a good go. Let's go find some new country. So where there's use, there's going to be rams, right? 
and I would have to figure out where you were, but it, you know, the U's tend to not go as far from the winter range. Okay. So the Rams will wander off in the summer. They'll go to the deep summer ranges. They're going to be pressured by hunters. They're going to go into a little hidey hole. Um, depending on what country you're in, the U's are typically going to be on those nicest slopes or whatever. Yep. Yep. Get into the, get into the big rock. Okay. Especially in stone sheep, get deep into where there's no grass. And you're like, why would there be a sheep here? Okay. Typically in region seven, those rams are in the in August or in the big gray rock. Um okay. and as October comes around, like when I'm just gonna go out and do a hunt, you know, they're gonna come to where probably you've seen these youth in October. Okay. If you went back there, I, I bet you a good dollar there's a ram in those youths. And it might be a little banana horn. Yeah. Where did he come from? Right. Um, and typically the bigger rams tend to show up last, it seems like. Yeah. I don't know. They know the game. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially in big horns. Like I use Spencer's Bridge as a great example. You can go in November and take pictures of those rams. Sure, you see some normal, nice rams. But we know Spencer's Bridge is famous for those 180 pluses. They're there. Do you ever do you ever see them in the rut down yeah. by the highway? No. That they know the game. They're smart. They'll they'll find a pocket of use that you know still back in there. They'll pull them off into the timber. They'll do their like. I know I've been to Spencer's Bridge trying to get some of these you know pictures of these pigs that I know I know are in Spencer's Bridge. Yeah. And uh, you know, shows the show themselves. So, um, but yeah, like back to where you were there. I would I, again. I would have seen the train or the Google Map picture, but I would have just I would have headed for the big rock. Yeah, most likely. Okay, and the follow up for that when you're in that situation and you're seeing. Like seeing no action is one thing, but we were seeing some action. Like, okay, the, it, this could happen. Like maybe there's, I always figured like, oh, maybe they're just a day or two behind because we we're kind of on this isolated range. Oh. And by the time we're there for three or four days, you realize you're just kind of watching everybody do these weird circuits. Oh, okay. But so you're kind the, of in a pocket of mountains with that big valleys around you? Yeah. Yeah, I would have crossed, I would have got on out of there. That's probably, okay. that's probably just a U range. Okay. So there, there's, there, that happens. Okay. Um, there's just little lower mountain stuff surrounded by huge valleys. Yeah. You, for some reason, seem to hang up on those. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd go out there. Okay. And headed for the next set of mountains. Something bigger, something rockier. Yeah. So in a, in, a, in a general hunt, um, as a general, and again, that, like, there's no perfect answer for this. Mm -hmm. I recognize that. But how long do you... Do you normally spend on a given area before you're like, I feel confident there's nothing here, or at least the chance of there being something here is so low, it's time for us to move on? There is no set number. I think it's just you got to feel confident in your gut that you got to move on, right? You can't just sit there for six weeks. Uh, you might only have 10 days. So you just got to make a game plan and follow your game plan. Yeah. Being knowing that you could potentially you pass a psych up and I, another real world experience is I sat in this basin that I know is good for rams with my client, glassed it for 16 hours and didn't see a single sheep. Right. So I made the decision, you know, I spent the whole afternoon, sorry, the whole yeah, whole day and the next morning, nothing. 
like, okay, we're going to cross this basin and then we have to wrap around. It's a big, like, gnarly basin. So you've got to wrap around it and get around the next mountain. So we crossed right through the middle of the basin to the far point and then started coming back this way. I was coming back and maybe had gone 600 yards and I was, you know, 100 yards in front of my client. I just stopped and every time I stopped, I put my binoculars up. I looked back into the basin we just crossed and there is a giant man sat there chewing his cut. And I said, boo, like, <laughs> and there came the story of a big stork and he killed this ram at 16 yards. It was one of those rodeos. Oh, it wasn't a rodeo. It was just intense. Right? He, yeah. just, he crossed it. He went over a pass and we're like, yeah, let's go. We dropped all that stuff. We got up there and snuck up to the pass. And it's like big boys. And we're just kind of like walking along it. My client's next to me. And I just seen this tip behind this rock. I'm like, you know, it's like right there. So I grabbed him and we just like side shuffled until you can see his body. I'm like, shoot him, bang. Yeah. So I made the conscious decision to move. And I had, you know, maybe it was in one of those little pockets or little spots you'd never seen. It. And maybe an hour after that, he could have walked out and started feeding. I'd have seen him. You just gotta, you gotta make up your mind of what yeah. your plans are and be good with it because you can you can start down yourself right and then you come yeah. home from oh i didn't kill one well i did check here well you know last last year in this spot we did all those miles in and seen all those rounds there was one basin that we did not check and we we chose not to and we me and my buddies talked to it about this today you know like ah oh, we should have got up there you know but we've done so much already yeah. And we were tired. We just made the conscious decision now. Screw it. Yeah. I'm a, yeah, I'm, a firm, I'm a firm believer in checking everything. And that's yeah. both, even the guys who that's unlike us. Usually we're just, you know, everything gets checked. Yeah. And we just, and you know, nothing could have been in there, but who knows? Now you'll never know. No, you never know. That was my big takeaway from, from this one was that, and I know better, like one of my biggest learnings from, from elk that started leading me to some success was I used to go back in these really far, I'd pack in, you know, eight, 10 miles and that that's where I was for 10 days. And if there's action, there's action. If there wasn't, there wasn't. And then when I switched to more bivy style, just literally destroying ground, like covering, walking, 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 bugle, walk, bugle, walk, walk. See, see nothing back to the truck in two days, drive up the road, walk, walk until you at, finally get into them. And yeah. that's what finally turned the corner for me is it's like, that's especially with elk, it's like they're either there or they're not there and where they, yeah. they might not be there. They might be there in two days or they might not be there at all. And, but when they're there, you know, they're there. Yeah. So you got to yeah. find the there, then you slow down and start to hunt. But before that, it's just crushing ground. And I should have known better on this sheep hunt, but we had some like tips and, you know, the typical bullshit that leads you to make bad decisions. And my big takeaway is never will I be, I, I need more country. Like that's the hunter I am. I need to be able to like cover ground and I need to be able to have other places, other places to go. And that, that with sheep hunting, that's tough though, man, because either you're fighting the crowds and walking in or you're taking a jet boat or uh, 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 getting dropped off on a lake and you're probably going to be some competition there. And then the roots can be somewhat limited and stuff. Like, I think that's my challenge for next year is finding country that I can 
like piece together, like work. And it's just not something I'm, I've spent a lot of years in the mountains, but like that particular style of planning is not something I've had a whole lot of experience. So that was my takeaway from this year. Mm-hmm. I need, and even thinking about like, like one way plans, like, okay, maybe what I do is like get dropped off at one location and plan to get picked up at another lake, you know, 25 miles Northwest or whatever, and plan like a one-way route. That's kind of where my mind is headed for next year now so that I'm not in the same situation where I'm so dependent on, on a smaller piece of country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's doable for sure. Or make, or make kind of a circuit, right? So you've got a big majority of mountain you can hunt and you, you just do a, a loop, right? So you can still come back. Because right. there, there is a lot of spots in BC that you limit you and you, you need to come back to the same spot, but right. you, you can still make a circuit of it. Um, yeah, it's a learning game, man. It's yeah, it really is. It's enjoyable. Um, I'm still learning, <laughs> and I think we need to. Yeah. Um, okay, let's hit up a a couple of of IG questions. Um, do you got any pro tips for caping? I'm sure you've done a lot of it. Yeah, I actually started in the taxidermy shop before I started guiding, which was a benefit. I bet. Um, if you talk to if you talk to taxidermists, they actually say guides are the worst skinners. Really? And depend. I, I don't know why. Uh, could be because they just you know it's not theirs. Maybe they don't have as much care. Maybe right. they they don't like skinning, or maybe they just want to get it done. But you know, they're making holes with turning the lips and stuff. Uh, Protests to keep. I, so I don't. Did you say gutting and caping? What did you say? I just said I just. They asked about gutting and caping, but I I think like there's a lot of videos on on gutting, and I think caping oh, is. Yeah. I I never touch the guts ever. Okay. So everything I usually do is life size. Sometimes it's a head, but mostly life size. So start on one side. I lay on the side. Uh, always cut down the back. Well, also I would say talk to your tax on this, right? If you've got a guy you use, ask how he yep. likes his skin. Because okay. there are the odd, most taxes nowadays like dorsal down the back. But um, there are a few that there's another technique where you kind of go down the neck part way and then you do up the belly. And it's confusing. I never do it. But I always go down the back and make sure you cut with the hair. So from the base of the head. To the so tail. they go all the way down the middle of the back. They don't come up the belly and then like unwrap in one piece. Yeah, most taxidermists now they you make you make four incisions so each leg up yep. the back of the leg, about six inches above the elbow, and then they go straight down the back to the base of the tail. And so yep. when they put down the form, they actually start, you know, if that makes sense. Huh. Okay. Slide the feet through and then come up to the back and then sew the back. So opposite of my bear. Yeah. Because I would do bear opposite for a rug. That's right. You do belly, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, cut cut with the hair, so from base of the head to the tail. Yep. Uh, make sure you're cutting on the skin side, not the hair side, so you're not cutting hair. And then with a life size, the real difficult part is getting, it's always tight, right? So you've okay. got to just skin as you go down and as it loosens up. But I, I would tend to skin around the other side of the hindquarter just to give some slack. Okay. And cut, cut that bone to the tailbone out and bring that down and then do one side 
if you're doing doe sheep, this is a big one is you gotta limit the amount of blood that you get on that hide because doe sheep and stone sheep have a hollow hair. Okay. So as soon as blood gets into that white hair, it sets in and it is very hard to get it out unless you do it like right away. Okay. And like, I'll go, I'll get back to a, you know, my same attempts down by a creek. I'll get that hide in that creek as soon as the first thing I do, hide in the creek okay. if there's blood on that creek. Um, because then stone sheep for sure, because stone sheep, like taxons can bleach a doe sheep hide. Okay. And they make it, you know, if there's some, because they get that natural mineral stain too it's on their hide. But with a stone sheep, you can't do that. Their coloration is, is their coloration. So you better right. get that blood out real quick. So a way, and where the blood really gets onto the hide is that like you've done the first side and now you're going to take the meat off that side before you flip it over, right? So then when you flip over, you're not getting the, the meat going. Yeah. Lay on a tarp, right? Okay. Don't take the meat off until that whole hide is out of the way. Okay. Right? So one side of the hide, get the legs out of the hide, the skin right to the base of the skull, lay down a tarp, flip it onto the tarp so the meat's on the tarp, take the rest of the hide off to the base of the skull, cut the skull off, and now you've got your carcass and do your butchering. Right. Now you've got a pristine hide. Hopefully, you know, you can have some blood on it from bullet holes and stuff. But um, that's a big one. You know, you cut that front shoulder off and boom, hit the artery and it just, yeah. it just blows up. That's good to know, man. That's helpful. Um, this next one's kind of vague. Big short, big horn sheep behavior. He's like in wind, best time to glass, etc. Maybe a better question because that we could go on for an entire other podcast just about sheep behavior is maybe like a couple tips or something of maybe things that are a little bit less than expected or thing that you learned over time that you felt was particularly valuable about bighorns, maybe specifically. Sit your back down and don't move. Okay. And typically in British Columbia, they're in the timber, thick, heavy timber. Yeah. And um, that that is a, that is one species that you need to like just make sure you're not leaving a ram because here's another well real life experience is um and it comes from ken my my that texan's friend he was in a basin and he he's one of those legends right like no one knows about him but he's he's done everything yeah and uh he was in a basin could hear bighorns hitting heads couldn't see them that's basically you'd spend the whole bighorn season and you know hunting them uh long story short eventually weeks later um a ram pops out it's a legal good big ram kills it 18 18 rams ran out of the timber and over the highland and he hadn't seen a single one of them no <laughs> wow bighorns live in the timber okay like bighorn success, like twenty five, about twenty five bighorns in the Kootenays get killed a season. It's okay. they say they say it's about two percent resident success to kill a bighorn. Wow, they're they're the hardest ram to kill. That was my quest. Like finally, you know, last year successfully got my bighorn, and that was a five year quest to kill one. <sighs> Congratulations, man! Yeah, they're tough, but. You know, there's, there are some guys down in the Cunies who are just unbelievable. Though. They just, they learn, they know where those sheep are. I don't live in the Cunies, so I don't have the summer to go scout them. 
But, yeah. Um, I, I've learned it over the years and I, I know good spots now from the help of others and just learning, going in yourself and figuring it out. Right. But, okay. That's, that's definitely helpful. How does somebody choose a guide? Let's say I've decided I'm good. And the funny thing is I'm, I'm batting like 50, 50. I, I can honestly say I've had like 50% really good experiences and 50% just shit. But I guess okay, if there's a non-resident, how do you, you're going to choose an outfit, right? You can't right. choose. There's a better, better question. Guys. Yes. Yes. Unless again, that's back to the whole story of me is yeah, you could choose me. Right. Right. There's a limited few of people who do their business that way, but you're going to choose an outfit. Um, you know, you see all those posts on Facebook, who, sh- you know, I want to do a snow, who should I go with? Everyone's going to give you an opinion, right? So yep. you've got to na- narrow down your field. I would definitely be calling past clients and I'd also be calling the, the unsuccessful clients and read how their experience was. If they give positive, everyone's going to give positive feedback usually. They killed. If they, if yeah. they kill. Talk to the guys who went through a 14 day slugger and didn't get one if they talk highly about how the guide worked, you know, tirelessly, the outfitter, you know, helped them as best he could, he could move them to another spot, anything like that. Right. You know, those guys are spending big dollars. You're going to want to make sure that the outfit is going to do all they can. Um, And ask, ask for their return, you know, there's limited, it's so hard to structure. There's, BC outfitters only have a certain quota, right? Yeah. And sheep hunting so busy now. Everyone wants to kill a sheep. Yeah. Everyone wants to be a sheep hunter. The, the, the good, good, good guys are booked out two, three, four years, right? Yeah. So uh, I also don't think people recognize, especially with stones, there's such a limited geographical region of stones when you compare it to like some of the other oh. species. So yeah. every, and anyone, any serious sheep hunter who's looking for a slam is going to have to. And if they're not a resident, they're going to have to book an outfitted hunt in BC to finish that slam. So I think that's also, like I tell some people, even BC residents, I'm like, dude, just go do a guided doll hunt in Alaska. Because if you if you want to get a sheep experience and let's say you've got a couple bucks in your pocket, you can go do that for 10 or 12 grand. And like, it's going to cost you 60, 70, 80 to do a stones. And for some guy who's never killed a sheep before, like, does there any fucking difference? Do you know what I mean? Like, um. Yeah, that and that's not for the guy who wants to proceed or pursue the the DIY thing. But I think sometimes the pressure that's exerted on that stones and that outfitting of the stones is something people underestimate sometimes because of the the function it plays in your slam. Mm-hmm. I'm also gonna I'm biting my tongue to say this, but I'm gonna say it because I like to ruffle feathers. But I'd ask the outfit how many hunters he's taken that season too. Okay. It's, there are outfits out there, unfortunately, that you know have ten allocations and are booking fifteen hunters that season. Oh, that's interesting because they know there's no way everyone's tagging out. Uh, I don't know. It, it, they're, they're already known in the industry. I don't have right. to say much about it. Um, the good guys have a good reputation for a reason. Right? Yeah. Um, and I don't need to list them off, but you're, you're quickly, you know, it just, that's, that's, you gotta just listen to your gut. And, you know, if, if a guy said, if an outfit says he's hundred percent on stone sheep, I'd probably ask a question. 
All right, we're going to do two more quick ones. I want to know your your favorite piece of gear and like the piece of gear that you like found most useless or least favorite piece of gear. Oh, that's funny. Favorite has to be Sitka Kelvin puffy pants. The three-quarter lengths? No, 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 just like the, the okay. pants, yeah, like the down pants. Yeah, these I, the funny the ten, an hour before we got on the those just showed up at the door, but I just got the three quarter length ones, but they're the puffy pants, the Kelvin light down pants, whatever they. Yeah, are. yeah. so like, you know, if you're cold, you throw on all your layers, you throw on your, your, your puffy coat or whatever, and you're still kind of chilled. You throw on the, like insulate your legs. Yeah, world of difference. All right, I'm stoked. And, I got those now. And you know what? Uh, worst. The six, the, the sicker jet stream, Unbe- uh-huh. unbelievable jacket. Yeah. I was just having a conversation about this jacket. Unbelievable. I have never used it in my package. Okay. It's always just hung in my closet. Yeah. And it's just the way I build my system. It just doesn't do it for me. It, right. It's it kind of the weight of it for the benefits doesn't meet a backpack stone or a sheep hunter, you know? Yep. Um, they make better pieces that are lighter and I can layer instead of having less layers than one. You know, I'm a, I'm a hot hiker too. So you start hiking. Same bro. The best piece of I ever gotten is funny. Some listening to a meat eater podcast and Giannis said, this is like, leave the trailhead cold. And so that's my thing. I don't care if I'm leaving from wherever I'm starting to hike, I better be cold. So always like take one extra layer off or something. Cause it five minutes down the trail. I'm going to be sweating my ass off. Yeah. Um, okay. That's interesting. I've actually had the Sitka mountain jacket. I took it on one hunt and loved it. And I've, I've never used it again. Cause it's like that halfway between like, it doesn't really do anything that a rain jacket can't do, but it doesn't yeah. keep the rain out like a rain jacket does. Yeah. And if you're like truck hunting, I did take it to Alberta to hunt muleys with Lander and for that kind of shit where you can like just pick what gear you want at the morning of the hotel, I think it's great. Oh, great. And for the wind that they have in Alberta, I think it's awesome. But for any of my BC stuff, it's like, I'm just going to take a rain jacket. Cause it's kind of going to do the same thing and yeah. it will keep me dry. But that's another thing that's, it's been in my closet for a long time now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Last question. What's something you wish you knew when you started or what would you tell you know, that 17 year old Nathan who is heading off to wrangle for the first year. Now that you got a dozen years under your belt, what piece of advice would you give him? Stop trying to be someone. Hey, I like <laughs> it. Get rid of the ego. Yeah. You're not famous if you hunt sheep. I don't know. Back to the whole, that, that's, you know, just do it for the right reasons. And, you know, your client should be your number one reason, you know, yeah. they're, they're the ones paying it. I'm talking in the guiding world. Yes. Um, your job is to bring a service to them. Right. And I, I could give you a list of people who haven't killed a sheep with me and you, you, you phone them up and I would hope that their response is, Oh, I would hunt with him in an instant again. Right. Right. And that was my, in the last five, six years, that's my goal is, to really sell a great adventure. And I think that's, that's a great note to end on, man. Cause it's like, 
it's very, you know, aligned with what I'm trying to do too. Like it should be about the challenge and the adventure and the memories and, you know, Rogan calls it type two fun. That stuff that you fucking hate during the minute. But like who remembers a roller coaster? Do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, it's fun in the moment, but it's not real fun. It's not something that burns itself onto your psyche and actually fundamentally changes who you are as a human being for the rest of your life. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I, I really enjoy killing stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And again, like people, if they describe me, I've heard people call me intense. Right. Because when I see a sheep and I know it's going to die or in a chance to do it, it's game on. Right. Right. And it's, I, I've just, I've learned there's a real fine line between you've got to be super patient as a sheep hunter and really know to just be patient, but then you really need to be able to switch it on and be aggressive. And I call it like the killer instinct. And right. there's a lack of that. There is a bit of lack of that. Like you really got to learn. You, you know, who's got the killer instinct and I'm just hunting with them. Yeah. Yeah. And cl- like clients I've taken, like, oh, man, I, we'll have a story time, you mm-hmm. and I, another day, but yeah. there's so many stories. They just don't have it. Right? That's why they're on a guided hunt. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, it's happened to me. This is why I keep hunting solo. <laughs> I keep cycling. I keep cycling through. But meeting this Spencer guy was a game changer for me. And I talked a little bit about that on a, on a couple of podcasts ago that like, People think I'm crazy because I do all these solo hunts. I I think it's easier because I never have to like compromise or I don't have to get along with anybody and I can just do whatever I want whenever I want. But I did find having like a a similarly motivated partner on this. And the other guy had to go home early. So I don't want to say that like he also had his, his, his positive attributes, but it was just Spencer that I got to hunt with the whole time. But having somebody else who is similarly minded and, and, equally motivated and like driven and and stuff and and had that you know what i mean like we were sitting there on the strip day 13 and like didn't want to leave man like i just yeah. i would have been i love it yeah, yeah. like i don't want to be there's nowhere else on the planet like yeah i miss my daughter and my wife and it'll be nice to get home and and order some pizza and like give everybody a hug but like i didn't want to go it was like the only way i can explain like I never feel more myself than when I'm out there. Like, I feel like I was born in the wrong fucking century. Like I'm not, I do okay at this, all this because I have to, but like out there, it's just like the heart level drops and like every, I'm just like sink into it. And it's like, I'm at home, man. Yeah. And there's, yeah. And if, and if you know that, and if you resonate with that, or if that resonates with you, then it's like, then you understand it. And if you don't, you just never will, because it's like, and I think some people are square. That's the other thing about this social media shit is square peg round hole. People see this, the cool part at the end and they think, oh, I'm supposed to go do that. And I, I try and tell people like, remember there's hunters and gatherers. And the shit part of this is that you might be a gatherer, my friend. Like, it's just, I'm not trying to be insulting, but like. Some people were built for this and some people weren't. And when you try to force yourself to do something you're not built for, it's not going to be a pleasant endeavor. Mm-hmm. 100%. No, I'm ranting, this is, which is what I tend to do as well. I love um, it. Mate, thank you so much. I'm definitely going to have to, you know, we'll get you back on and get some more stories and, and dig into some more shit. Thank you very much for your time. I, I really appreciate it, bro. Oh, it's fun. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Yeah. Mm-hmm.